If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Lord willing, we will finish the book this morning. While you are turning there, let's see, just a recap of where we've been. In chapter 1, God calls his prophet to go preach against the city of Nineveh. Their evil has risen up to God. And Jonah, in response to God's calling, full of zeal for the Lord and love for the nations, goes straight to Nineveh. No, the book would be much shorter. <laughs> Jonah, full of self-righteousness and nationalism, he flees. He takes the first charter out of Joppa to Tarshish, what would have been the opposite side of his known world. So he tries to flee from God, but as the text shows us, it's a futile thing to try to get away from the God of the land and the sea. And Jonah soon learns that it's also a fatal thing. His flight from God is pictured as the flight from life to death as he goes deeper and deeper as he seeks, sinks into Sheol. But God lovingly pursues his prophet rather than allowing him to persist in sin. He sends a great storm onto the sea that threatens to break the ship. Jonah is thrown over. It's here as he is sinking to the bottom of the sea that God finally overtakes him. He overcomes him. It, as he's laying on the bottom of the seabed covered in seaweed, he feels the full weight of God's justice and mercy upon him. As he's drowning at the last moment, he cries out to God for mercy. He remembers Yahweh and God saves him. He does so by way of a great fish it is the means or the instrument of salvation. And Jonah's movement from death to life, it's complete as the whale spews him out onto dry land three days later. That's where we pick up with Jonah today. And the question is, how will God's gracious salvation change Jonah? Will Jonah respond to God's mercy with repentance? Will we? If you will, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Jonah chapter 3. And four, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. 
I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sinning disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it is, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. Amen. You can be seated. I hope we see two things from the text today. That God's judgment leads to repentance. And God's mercy leads to repentance. In chapter 3, we'll see that God's judgment leads to at least it ought to. God's judgment should lead us to repentance. And in chapter 4, we'll see that God's mercy, at least it should lead us to repentance. But first, God's judgment, his holy, just, right response in verdict concerning our sin, it ought to lead us to repentance. Beginning with verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. This is almost verbatim what we see in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Jonah is caught in Groundhog Day. Only he's been given a second chance. Verse 3, Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. So what changes between chapter 1 and chapter 3? Jonah has experienced God's justice and his mercy, which is to say he's experienced salvation. Not only did he learn firsthand the futility in trying to flee from God, but the fatality of it. He came face to face with the death he deserved, and God showed him mercy. I want to make just a couple quick points of application, even from the first few verses here. The first is that God is a God of second chances, and then some. God could have allowed Jonah to make it to Tarshish to live a life of rebellion, that would have been the worst thing for him. God could have allowed Jonah to drown at the bottom of the sea. He could have even saved Jonah and then said, I'll send someone else to Nineveh. But God isn't done with Jonah yet. He will use his stubborn, unwilling prophet to bring an entire city to repentance and to teach him about the nature of grace. He's got a plan both for Nineveh and for Jonah. If you think Jonah doesn't deserve to be a prophet, you'd be right. That's the point. He doesn't deserve to be a prophet any more than he or we deserve to be snatched from the jaws of death. Maybe you think you don't deserve to be used by God. You would be right. Maybe you think God can't use you. You would be wrong. 
And it's not that you need to think more highly of yourself. It's that you need to think more highly of God. The one who commands the wind, the waves, and the whales can and does use wayward children like us. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, as it were. You see, we see God's mercy both in his saving and in his sending us. We don't deserve either. Second quick application. Don't beat yourself up if you've missed out on opportunities to share the gospel in the past. Notice that Jonah is being given a second chance to go and to preach to Nineveh. No doubt many of us have passed up opportunities to share the gospel with our family, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with our roommates even, as long as they are still breathing. Especially if you plan to see them again, you have an opportunity to share with them. Just because you haven't doesn't mean you can't. So we see God's mercy in saving and sending him. Jonah, on some level, grasps this and has been changed. He goes. Verse 3, it continues. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. So Nineveh is huge, 120,000 residents for the ancient Near East that's really big. It would take not literally three days to walk across, but it'll take Jonah. It's a three-day mission trip, basically of walking and preaching and walking and preaching until he's uh, sufficiently warned the population about the judgment that is to come. Verse 4, Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Okay, it's day one. Jonah's just warming up here. The Lord tells him to preach about the judgment that's to come. Every seasoned preacher, they've they've got like sermons in their back pocket. If you were to call on them to preach in a pinch, they know exactly what they'd preach. Well, God tells Jonah to preach about judgment, and he knows just the sermons for the Assyrians. Nineveh will be demolished. It's like five words in Hebrew. There's no mention of grace or mercy, no means of salvation, no gospel presentation. It's like half of the bridge illustration. For the wages of sin is death. Everyone's like, go on. Jonas, it's not turn or burn, it's just burn. This is fire and brimstone that would make old Baptists uncomfortable. Jonah is actually enjoying himself more than he thought he would. Only verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Day one, maybe sermon one, Jonah preaches what has got to be one of the worst sermons in the history of preaching. And the people believe God. It spreads like wildfire from the greatest of them to the least. It's hard for us to envision. Imagine that you're on Beale Street before Grizzlies game. There's no COVID, so it's packed. You know, you've got all the usual suspects there. People are out, you know, partying. People are asking for money. The Beale Street flippers are there. And that preacher is there, the one with the big sign telling everyone they're going to hell. You kind of scoff at him because the way you share the gospel is much better. Then all of a sudden, people start believing his message. It begins as a whisper. Before you know it, everyone is wailing. They are falling to their knees, crying out for mercy. They believe that God's judgment will come upon our city, and it spreads like wildfire from Downtown to Piperton, the city has believed God. This is what happened in Nineveh. The people woke up thinking it was a normal Tuesday like any other Tuesday. 
The world is just moving along as it always has. There's nothing to be fearful of. They find out just how false that narrative is. Some random doomsday foreigner shows up preaching a message of judgment. That would have been a dime a dozen for them, but something different happens. Notice the text. They don't believe Jonah. It says they believe God. It's not, well, I like to think about God this way. This is what I think is happening in 40 days. They hear Jonah's words for what they are, the very words of God. God illumines their hearts to hear and to understand that human history isn't meandering along. It's moving towards an appointed end, which is to come face to face with God. Only he's not the God of our own making. He is holy, sovereign, and just. His justice will be exact, and his wrath on his enemies will be terrible. Friends, don't believe the lie that time is just moving along without purpose. That there will be no judgment for the non-Christian. Listen to Peter's warning. This comes to us in 2 Peter He says, above all, beware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Christ will return and God will judge the world once again as he did in the days of the flood. But he's not delaying with us because he's forgotten. He does so that we might repent. Peter goes on, this is in verse 9 of chapter 3. The Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Friends, especially if you're a non-Christian, hear this. God is being patient with you that you might repent. We would implore you to consider the weight of your sins this morning, what it means that you will stand before a holy God with nowhere to flee. We would encourage you to flee the wrath to come by trusting in Jesus today. We believe that in Christ, God himself became a man. That he lived perfectly on our behalf and that he actually absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. There is not one ounce of condemnation left over for those who trust in Jesus. And if you die and you're not a Christian, whether it's 40 days or 40 years from now, you will face God without a leg to stand upon. He will not make an exception for you. He is not some old man in the sky. He is the creator and judge. We love you enough to tell you the truth. You can find shelter in Christ. Verse 5 gives us a summary of what happened. The people believed. Verse 6 actually comes first. It's not a chronological order. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
their king, their ruler, their judge, the commander of their armies, he gets off his little throne and recognizes the lordship of God. He strips off his royal robe, the sign of his dignity and majesty, and he exchanges it for one of humility, sackcloth and ashes. This is how a sinner ought to respond to the holiness of God. Notice there is no fleeing, no justification, no self-righteousness, just recognition of our guilty and pitiful state before God. The king is undone as he should be. Verse 7, then he issued a decree in Nineveh, by order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. The king issues this decree. Everything that has breath is to cease from eating and drinking. They're willing to forsake what they need to live to show God they know they deserve to die, that they're desperate for his life-giving mercy. Everyone does three things. They fast, they call out earnestly to God, not to their pantheon of gods. They call out to Yahweh. The one who will judge must be the one who will save. And they turn from their sins. Friends, there is no exception. Not for the rich or the poor. Not for the religious. Not for those who grew up in a Christian home. Not for those who think they're moral. God's reckoning will come for all who have broken his law without exception. If you have life, that means you. And so everyone from the king to the commoner, they bend their knee before God and they cry out for mercy. Why, look at verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Remember, Jonah's message, it was, it was a pronouncement of judgment only. Nothing about the mercy of God, nothing about the salvation of God, nothing about his compassion or kindness, his grace or his goodness. They don't know what the fullness of Yahweh is like. They know he's the creator, the Lord, the judge, that he is holy and powerful enough to destroy them in 40 days. But they also have a hunch he just might be merciful. Like, he's giving us 40 days. He seems to be really patient. And he sent a prophet to preach to us when he didn't have to. It seems like he cares. Maybe, just maybe he will be kind to us. He will give us grace when we deserve destruction. They don't presume upon the grace of God. Who knows, maybe he'll turn. Maybe he'll relent. Maybe we won't get what we deserve. They are prepared for calamity, but praying for compassion. Friends, this could not be further from what the average person assumes about God today, ourselves included. We live in a society where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. There is no fear of God because the God of 2020 is not worth fearing. He is tolerant of sin and therefore just as immoral and unjust as we are. But friends, apart from the holiness of God, apart from his justice, you'll never understand the sweetness of his mercy. This is what makes the cross so incredible that God himself has dealt with our problem. 
This is what makes verse 10 so incredible. Look at it. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster that he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Nineveh repents and believes, and God grants them grace. It's not that Nineveh cleans themselves up. They turn from their sins. They trust. They choose life. They recognize that what they were worshiping, how they were living, it warranted punishment, and they flee from it into the safety of God. And God relents. They don't get what they deserve. They get what they need, his mercy. I want to say just a quick thing here. It's kind of an aside, but maybe you've noticed it or been wondering about it. There's a play on words here. Nineveh turns from their evil. They repent, and God turns from his disaster. He relents. If you have an older version of the Bible, like the King James Version, I'd encourage you to get a new Bible. <laughs> but if you're reading from it, it actually says that God repents. Now, depending on what you mean by the word, it's not uh, a terrible translation. Both words, it's the same word for turn. Their repentance, God relenting. It's a word for turn. You might be wondering, does this mean that God changes his mind or his plan? Right? He had threatened them with disaster, but like, whoa, didn't expect Jonah to just crush the sermon. <laughs> didn't think the entire city would repent. God is, you know, hidden backspace on his plan of the future. Some people actually suggest that God doesn't know the future and that he changes like, just like us, like a creature. His plan, his will, his being, and they cite this text. Friends, God was not caught off guard. This is why he sent Jonah there to preach. Whether Jonah wants it or not, he would be the means by which God would save Nineveh, preserve them at least. The prophecy of destruction, like their standing before God, was conditional. God promises judgment for his enemies, and he promises to save those who will look to him for salvation. So God doesn't change. His eternal plan doesn't change. They were actually facing the wrath of God because they stood before him as enemies. Now that they've changed, they've turned, from, they've turned in repentance and faith, they get the same God only now they experience his mercy. Numbers 23 verse 19 tells us, God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. Change is the language and action of creatures, not God. It's why we can trust God. He's not like us. Any change in him would be for the worse. So the Ninevites, they're the ones that change, they repent and believe, just like the sailors did in chapter 1, just like Jonah does in chapter 2, just like we did when we repented and believed in Christ, and God relents. So we see in chapter 3 that God's judgment ought to lead us to repentance. But it's not God's judgment alone. It's also God's mercy. They have a hunch that God might be merciful. If they had no hope, they would have thrown like a, a 40 days rager, world's ending for us, or made like a 40 day bucket list. But they repent because they're hopeful that God might be merciful, and he is. So God's judgment ought to lead us to repentance, and so should his mercy. I think this becomes clear to us as we consider the example of Jonah God's mercy toward him, toward us, it should lead us to repentance. So all of Nineveh repents, God relents. Chapter 4, verse 1, 
Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Could you imagine? Like Josh goes, he preaches in Cordova. Like, Josh, how was your sermon? He's like, it was terrible. Why? All of Cordova came to Christ. (laughs) It's like, oh, man, I'm not much of a suburbs guy, but whoa. (laughs) I'll be transferring my membership. This is not what you expect from your prophet. Notice the contrast between Jonah and God. Nineveh turns from their sins. God turns from his hot anger, but Jonah turns his up. He's furious about two things. He's angry that his enemies would repent, and he's angry that God would relent. He tells us plainly why in verse 2 and 3. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. This is why Jonah fled. It's not that he was afraid of preaching to the violent Assyrians. It's not that he had a better job offer in Tarshish. It's that he thought God would be merciful to them. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but the Assyrians were brutal. They were violent to their neighbors. They've exacted tribute on Israel in the past, and in the future, they will lay waste to the northern nation of Israel. They'll never recover. Assyria will carry off their people into exile. Jonah probably knows about this from the prophets Amos and Hosea, from their prophecies. You can kind of track with Jonah what he's thinking. If I don't preach a message of judgment to them, they can't be warned. If they're not warned, they can't repent If they can't repent, they'll be destroyed. If they're destroyed, they can't destroy my people. He thinks he's got God in a bit of checkmate. I think on some level we can at least understand where Jonah's coming from. Imagine being a Jew at the start of the Second World War and knowing the atrocities that would happen to your people at the hands of the Nazis. God sends you to preach a warning to Germany. Jonah says, no thank you. He thinks he's got God's hands tied behind his back, so to speak. But you see, Jonah has elevated his love of nation over love of God. And over love of man, too. Jonah would rather the Israelites, who were just as wicked, live than see the Assyrians experience the grace of God. Jonah goes on. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and the one who relents from sending disaster. Now, this sounds like a compliment, but Jonah means that he's full of content, contempt. We begin our services praising God for these attributes. Every Sunday, you probably pick up, we pick up on a different attribute of God. We gather this morning to worship our gracious God, our compassionate God, Jonah is full of contempt over the fact that God would be gracious and compassionate to his enemies. The irony here is rich. Jonah is reciting what would have been kind of like a creed to them, a confession about God. We read it earlier. It comes to us in Exodus chapter 34. To give a little bit of context, God has just brought Israel up out of slavery, out of bondage. He's saved them from their oppressors and their sins. They're encamped at Mount Sinai. Moses has been 
meeting with God on the mountain, and Israel decides to build a golden calf. They'd say, let's make our own God to worship for bringing us up out of Egypt. God's anger is burning, the text said, just as he's described by the king here. He declares he's going to destroy Israel. Moses pleads with God for mercy, and the text says, God relents. Israel comes face to face with the death they deserve, and they receive mercy. Moses is desperate for more of this God. So he asks to see the glory of God as we read God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he allows his goodness to pass by. He proclaims his name to him, which is to say he reveals himself. This is God's self-disclosure to Moses and his people. This is what God says about himself, the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Is there a more beautiful and relieving description of God? Is this not the God that we experience every single day? We don't just flee from the wrath of God, we run into his arms, into the safety of our Father, Israel experiences the compassion and grace of God, his patience and his faithful love. They experience his forgiveness despite their iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Israel, like Nineveh, like Jonah, deserve wrath, but God relents. They receive the same grace. You see, this is Jonah's rub. It's not so much with Nineveh, it's with God. I know what you're like, and I knew you'd be you. Jonah wants Yahweh to be less like Yahweh and more like Jonah. Before we shake our heads at Jonah, how wonder how often we want God to be less like God and more like us. Quicker to punish our enemies, more accepting, not forgiving, more accepting of our sins, You see, Jonah's problem is not that God is gracious and compassionate. It's not that he's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. It's not that he relents from sending disaster. Jonah loved those things when he was drowning at the bottom of the ocean. Jonah cannot stand the fact that God, his God, would extend covenant love to his enemies, to those who will one day lay waste to his people. Jonah wants God to be kind to me, but to crush them. Jonah misunderstands grace. Friends, I wonder how we have fooled ourselves into thinking that we deserve grace. Is there someone that if God told you to preach the gospel with them, you would flee? Worse yet, if they came to Christ, you would be furious at God over. The things they've done are just too evil. What if God called you to be a missionary to ISIS or to share the gospel with someone who hates you because of the color of your skin? To love and serve and share the gospel with someone who wants you to be deported? To share the gospel with someone whom you believe to be a threat to your culture? Somewhere along the way, Jonah came to think that God's grace was something he deserved. 
He's so furious, verse three, and now, Lord, take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah cannot envision living in a world where his enemies experience God's grace. He thinks God's made a mistake. You should have left my body in the seaweed. God could crush Jonah like an ant right now if he wanted to. But he pierces him with a question in verse 4. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Now, God's not trying to learn something new from Jonah. He's certainly not trying to get an ethics lesson from his prophet. God is getting Jonah to consider the condition of his heart in his sin. Are you right to be angry when God treats others the same way he treats you? It's as though God is asking, am I free to be God or am I restricted to your bidding? No answer from Jonah. Verse 5, Jonah left the city and he found a place east of it. Once again, he flees from the city and it really is shown as a willful expulsion from God's presence. He flees east. He makes for himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. So Jonah heads out to the city, out of the city, out east. He plops himself down on a spot where he can watch. He can overlook Nineveh. He's sitting there eating falafel, popcorn, something. He's waiting for fireworks. Maybe Nineveh will slip up and God will rain fire from heaven. You see, he's familiar with what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Only there, Abraham was pleading with God to be merciful. Here, Jonah wants God to crush his enemies. So he's angry, he's bitter, he's hoping that God will deal with the wicked in the city, not realizing that God is dealing with the wicked one outside of the city. But even with Jonah, God doesn't condemn him, he corrects him. He takes him out there to be compassionate to him, to be steadfast in his love toward him. He's going to give him a lesson in grace once again, verse 6. The Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him for his trouble. Jonah had built some kind of tabernacle for himself. Apparently, it was no good. He's a bad prophet, bad tent maker. (laughs) The Lord sprouts up this plant. He appoints it. It says, Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. Again, the irony here, Jonah is displeased by Nineveh's repentance and salvation, but he's pleased that this plant is sprouted up out of nowhere to give him relief from the sun. This is the problem of sin. It turns us inward. What we're seeing in Jonah is what is going on deep down inside all of our hearts. We tend to love our comfort more than we care about other people. Think about it. How often have you passed up on sharing the gospel or serving a brother and sister because it might make you uncomfortable? Sin is, after all, the worship of self. It is the turning in on ourselves. The thinking the world ought to revolve around our kingdom. Verse 7. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. Notice God's sovereign control. In chapter 1, God appoints the whale. Here he appoints the plant. He appoints the worm. 
He appoints the scorching east wind. Nothing in this entire book is taking place apart from God's sovereign will. Nothing in your life is happening apart from God's sovereign and good will. But God is not picking on Jonah. This is not some cosmic joke. God is not telling the angels, watch how miserable I can make Jonah. God is working all things together for his good, for the good of his people, including his stubborn prophet. It's because Jonah's stubborn, self-righteous sin, it's because of his stubborn, self-righteous sin that the heart surgery he needs is going to be painful. Just as God pressed upon Jonah with his justice and mercy under the depths of the sea, so now God beats upon him with a scorching east wind. The text goes on, the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Notice we're not talking about the city anymore, we're talking about a plant. Yes, it's right, he replied, I'm angry enough to die. This is what 50% of my conversation with my toddlers sounds like. (laughs) More tears, just as angry, just as ridiculous. He's so angered about this plant dying that he wants to die. You see, as God is pressing upon Jonah through his circumstances, the real Jonah is coming out. Joshua mentioned this, we saw this in Mark Our circumstances can't make us sin. Jesus says that it's from our hearts come all evil and defilement. What we're getting is the real Jonah, bitter, angry, self-righteous, selfish, turned in on himself. God is pressing upon him through his circumstances. He is turning up the heat. Then God pierces him with a question. Are you right to be angry? And then he corrects him with this word, verse 10. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. Like Jonah, let's, let's get this straight here. Did you till the soil? No. Did you plant the seed? No. Did you water it? No. Okay. Do you have anything to do with the plant growing? No. Okay. Jonah, do you understand the concept of grace? You had nothing to do with this plant. You had nothing to do with your salvation. It's undeserved favor. Grace is God giving us what is good for us when we don't deserve it. Like a plant to cool our head or him saving us from the consequences of our sin when we deserve to drown at the bottom of the ocean. Verse 11, God goes on, So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh. Right, Like you care about this plant that's not yours, that you had nothing to do with, that only lasted 24 hours, but me, the God of the universe, I can't care about a city brimming with life. Do you see the problem here? Jonah, you're upset I destroyed a plant and not a city of people. This is what's so nasty about our sin and self-righteousness in particular. Jonah thinks he deserves God's faithful love and forgiveness. He's confident Nineveh does not. He's right they don't, but neither does he. Neither do we. Jonah fails to see that he's been a recipient of that very grace that he wants God to withhold. 
he should be in sackcloth in ashes before a holy God over the severity of his sin. Instead, he's pouting like a toddler over a dead plant. Friends, the mercy that God has shown us every waking moment of our lives ought to lead us to repentance, not self-righteousness. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which is more than a hundred thousand people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well as many animals. This is what Jonah doesn't get. Nineveh is enslaved in their sin. This doesn't mean they're not culpable for God. They're guilty for the sin that they love to do. They're rebels, yes, but they're enslaved. Israel, like the church, was in a privileged position. She had the prophets, the priesthood, God's word. Nineveh had none of that. We believe, of course, that God elected us, that he regenerated us, that he called us, that he gave us the gifts of faith and repentance to believe in a message that's all about something that God accomplished on our behalf. There is nothing for us to boast in. Nineveh is so twisted in their sin they can't distinguish from their right and their left. Does that anger God? Yes. But it also stirs God's compassion. You see, sin doesn't preclude us from being compassionate. It ought to stir it on. Sinners are both responsible and helpless. It's this helplessness that moves God to have pity on us. You see, compassion is not often excluded. Sorry, compassion is often conditioned by sin, not excluded by it. NBC, I wonder if the sin of others moves you to compassion or contempt. If you want to know if you understand the grace of God, this is the question. Whose sin do you get more angry about, yours or others? When your roommates sin against you, does it make you angry or do you feel pity on them? When your family wrongs you, do you view it as an opportunity to be mean to them or to do ministry? When you've been hurt, do you lash out or do you love? Do you pray for God to be kind to your enemies or do you secretly hope for their demise? Jonah, you cared about a plant because it makes you comfortable. Can I not care about enslaved image bearers? This is how the book ends. With a question. There's no resolution. If this was a movie, it would be a terrible ending. Unless you're a movie critic. 100% Rotten Tomatoes. There's no resolution, no response from Jonah, no indication of repentance. But we're not missing part of the book. It ends like this because it's supposed to confront us with our own self-righteousness in sin. It is though God is piercing us with the same questions. Is it right for you to be angry? Do you understand grace? Do you think I saved you because you deserve it? Nineveh repented in light of God's judgment, hoping for mercy. Jonah was a recipient of mercy and it should have led him to repentance, to gratitude, to worship, to mission. How will we respond to the grace of God? Let's pray.
Father, we praise you because you indeed are gracious and compassionate. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in faithful love. You have relented from sending the disaster upon us that we deserve. We are thankful that in Christ Jesus we have shelter not just now but forever. That we have been reconciled to you. We pray that you would help us to understand grace more and more. Keep us from being angry, bitter, self-righteous people. We pray that you would work in our hearts even this morning. Help us to love you more. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to be quick in sharing the gospel and extending grace of you as you has done toward us in Christ. We pray this in his name and by your spirit. Amen.